0: Hello everybody, Uh, my name is Gina Martini, I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and today we're talking about uh, podcasts from the Chief Scientist and we are very fortunate to be able to uh, use a podcast from one of our recent members of the Science Research Board, Dr Amira Gerges, who's an expert in drugs misuse and novel psychoactive substances. What we decided to do is to uh, use a, a podcast that Dr. Gergis did in conjunction with Swansea University. And we hope you enjoy the podcast where she discusses the various misuse of drugs which are occurring in everyday life and some of the steps uh, people are taking to try and control this abuse. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blaxland and today I'm joined by Dr Amira Gurgis, Senior Lecturer and the MPharm Programme Director of the Medical School at Swansea University. Her research focuses on novel psychoactive substances, NPS for short, which mimic the effects of traditional recreational drugs but are not internationally controlled. They are emerging at an alarming rate and posing significant public health risks. Dr. Gurgs, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Good to see you. Thank you. To start us off, could you just give us an overview about what your research involves?
1: My research mainly focuses on drug detection and drug education. In terms of drug detection, I mainly focus on the novel psychoactive substances. Since they are less studied, they are novel drugs with unpredictable uh, side effects. And therefore, it's very important to be able to identify and classify them to inform policymaking and clinical decision making.
0: And what are some of these drugs called, and what do they do?
1: So sometimes, or initially, they were called legal highs, and that was very wrong because it implied they were legal and they were safe, and that was not correct. Um, They were also known as designer drugs, uh, club drugs, uh, but what do they encompass and do? They include a number of classes. So they may include uh, cathinones, synthetic cannabinoids, uh, phenethylamines, so a number of families and subfamilies as well, um, but also they may contain uh, food supplements that can be used uh, recreationally or misused. They may contain diverted prescription medicines um, and therefore they may contain a number of drug classes that can do many things.
0: Have any of these drugs got any particular street names that we might recognize from the news or anything like that
1: yes so one of them is spice and spice actually started as a brand Um, eventually we started to find in seized spiced products that they contain different types of synthetic cannabinoids so now spice is not a brand anymore but it is to uh, kind of equivalent or used interchangeably with synthetic cannabinoids
0: and what kind of effect can that have on people or does that have on people
1: what we've seen with spice it was um or with synthetic cannabinoids in general uh, mass poisoning and that was seen in a number of countries and one of them was in the uk in manchester uh april 2017 um where some people were seen in the by manchester city center um they were called like looking like zombies so basically they were in a catatonic state where they were like as if attempting to touch their toes and they stay in that position for a few minutes and that was um, a very strange case to deal with in A&E
0: what's happened to them in those cases what's going on in their bodies
1: it is not Um, very well understood uh, about the impact or the mechanism of action, since uh, spice products may contain more than one synthetic cannabinoid Uh, It is uh, a mistake to assume that most synthetic cannabinoids mimic cannabis in in effect because they don't uh, only work on CB1, CB2 receptors, but they may also work on other uh, receptors uh, like NMDA and they can um, also alter multiple body functions.
0: CB one and CB two receptors. What are they?
1: So these are the cannabinoid receptors. So CB one is in the brain. So we have two of them. So CB one and CB two. CB two is usually present peripherally in other body parts, but uh, CB one is mostly in the brain.
0: And what do they? What do they do? Or what kind of effects do they? So have?
1: when when the um, cannabis-like product um, or drug. Uh, binds to the CB one receptor, then you can get the C- the cannabis like effect. So people may feel euphoric, may um, so basically the effect of uh, of cannabis.
0: How are some of these synthetic drugs produced? What's the process to actually make them?
1: Okay, so most of the new psychoactive substances they have various methods of their for their production, mostly people went into published literature of failed patents and uh, failed drugs that have been discontinued because of uh, their side effects or harms. And they started to modify their structure a little bit. Uh, Maybe they started with amphetamine and because amphetamine was initially illegal to possess or to uh, handle, they started to modify the structure whilst preserving the psychoactive effect of amphetamine then you come up with a completely new molecule that was not seen before. And uh, some of the drugs, for example, like MDMA was initially a pharmaceutical and then eventually was discontinued because of its effects. Now, then it became um, used recreationally. So somebody synthesized it and uh, used it um, to sell it for recreational purposes.
0: Why are we seeing more of it? On our streets, you know, you mentioned the Manchester example.
1: Yeah, I think the internet played a very big role in um, uh, in this. Also, uh, the fact that these drugs initially were legal, so they were highly accessible. They were very cheap. They were legal. Anybody can buy them. So it became a new type of trade, which was completely legal. And people have done it openly um, in head shops on the high street, on the internet. And it, when it started on the internet, it kind of became uh, covered with very new marketing strategies where the products eventually um, came with a very bright, attractive packaging, uh, a lot of information on them. And now what we can see, uh, they may not be sold openly in the head shop anymore, especially in the UK after the Psychoactive Substance Act in 2016. Uh, they may not be sold openly on the surface web, but we can see that wherever they sold on the on the web, there is um, a marketing strategy. So there is, there are um, customer reviews, and you can get a, a lot of information. And they are trying to keep uh, the reputation and keep the the customers.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the 2016 Act. Mm. Do you think that was an act that was trying to sort of keep up with the problem in some ways? Because you know these these substances existed in the first place, like you Mm. said, because they were, first they were medical or they were legal or they were food supplements or whatever. So was government trying to play catch up almost?
1: I think we're still playing catch up and there Mm. is a lot to catch up with, Uh, especially that these drugs, they emerged and flooded the global market in hundreds, if not more. Uh, of them that were never studied before. So we still have a lot to catch up with. Uh, However, I think the purpose of the Psychoactive Substance Act uh, in the UK mainly aimed at restricting supply, so to to reduce the amount of uh, accessibility and availability. And I think it has um, has been very successful in that. Uh, It may have not tackled all the issues, i.e. the use of uh, drugs uh, among the homeless population or in prisons but it has definitely uh, uh, there is evidence that it has limited supply.
0: The homeless is going to be my next question because I'm just going to wonder who is the market for a lot of these, these substances.
1: For these substances we've seen a very large um, number of users like it was not Uh, the same trends that we've seen with the traditional drugs of abuse. We've seen the young and the old, we've seen both genders, we've seen professionals, we've seen um, uh, uh, very high use among the the homeless, among the prisoners, among uh, LGBT uh, population within the context of chemsex.
0: So there's not a particular group necessarily who uses any of these things? Because I suppose if you think of perhaps more typical or traditional drugs. Mm -hmm. cannabis has a stereotypical user, doesn't it? Cocaine has a stereotypical user, but less so with these substances.
1: Yes. So these drugs and because they are so chemically diverse and there are so many of them, some of them became more popular in certain settings. So, for example, if we talk about the club drugs uh, and particularly the drugs that are most popular in the music festivals, you will see, for example, methadrone, GBL, GHB, ecstasy, um so why that's because these drugs um help people to become more sociable uh, to dance for longer um so to overcome the confidence issues. therefore, it was very easy to uh sell them and to make them popular in this particular in this particular context
0: and why would those particular club drugs do people take them? obviously you said it's a confidence thing, it's an energy mm. thing, but what chemical reaction is going on there to actually create that?
1: So basically, there are a lot of uh, chemical reactions that take place, particularly with those drugs when they cross the blood brain barrier, mainly on the dopamine uh, and serotonin um, uh, pathways. So with the dopamine in particular, we call it the um, reward pathway, where people do things and then remember to do it again because it was so rewarding. Um uh, uh, serotonin as well, noradrenaline, so these three pathway pathways are mainly affected.
0: And I promise we'll come back and talk about these things in more detail probably mm-hmm. uh, but what about levels of popularity? You said this wasn't just a UK thing this is a global yeah. issue, yeah. but in terms of um well thinking relatively about yes. all of this, I suppose is it does the u k have a particular problem or is it similar to lots of other first world countries?
1: I think somehow. Most of the new drugs, they were tested in the UK first or not first, but they made their entry to the market prior to other countries. Um, I'm not sure what is the reason for this. Um, However, most drugs, they were like um, uh, produced in in like mass production in India or in China, then go to Europe for being uh, cut or packaged and then travel to the rest of the world. Um, so I'm talking mainly about the NPS. Um, in recent years, we, with the advancement in technology, where we started to see people making these drugs, not in the kitchen, but actually in proper, um, like Breaking Bad-like labs. Mm. So proper, uh, the, uh, very well-equipped labs, um, chemists and very good knowledge behind the synthesis. Uh, and therefore it was um, very commercial uh, mass production and uh, high purity as well.
0: Do you think programmes like Breaking Bad have actually contributed to the supply of these sort of drugs? I'm sure I read that after that show finished that the supply of crystal meth in the United States went up.
1: I'm not sure about (laughs) this. However, I I can say that trying to overcome the legislation and coming up with new drugs is not new. I think that when we talked about the new psychoactive substances a lot of people thought okay because they are completely new no they were not new they researched or you know they they resurfaced uh not necessarily new but if you look back at the 1950s when morphine became uh restricted and controlled new analogs which were legal came up to the market so it was a game and mouse uh you know uh, <laughs> game of cat and mouse <laughs> uh, again and again since, you know, very early time.
0: Just thinking for one more thing about supply and mm. cost and yeah. the price of these kinds of drugs yeah. as well. Are they or have they been cheaper than some of the traditional or more traditional recreational drugs?
1: They have been and I think that was one of the reasons why they became so popular and they there was a very high accessibility to them. Um, I think... Uh, also, the, the lack of availability of the traditional drugs of abuse led people to replace sometimes uh, or during a certain period to replace them with um, with the new psychoactive substances. So, f- for example, when ecstasy became uh, unavailable because the precursor used to produce uh, ecstasy was not available. Um around 2009 perhaps, this is when people went to mephedron. It was the new drug that caused that intactogenic effect similar to ecstasy. So it became popular at the time and people found it easy to go from MDMA or ecstasy to methadron.
0: Let's try and pick some of this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Why do these substances pose such a risk both to the individual but also mm-hmm. to society collectively?
1: If you think about pharmaceuticals or, you know, drugs that we can buy from the pharmacy or obtain on prescription, they've gone through a lot of testing. Mm. So they were tested in silico and then in vitro and then on animal models and then on humans. But if you think about these drugs, someone made them in the kitchen or, and actually people still do that, some of them, um, they were not tested at all and then they are tested on humans straight away. So they are drugs that were never tested. We don't have any information or we have limited information now on their toxicology and pharmacology and so on. So therefore, if someone gets a, you know, a toxic effect from one of these drugs, one or more of these drugs, and they are taken to A&E, for example, do we know actually what to do? We don't because we don't have the knowledge.
0: And I assume there's probably quite a big variation within just one of these substances as well. You can get different potencies of a certain drug.
1: Yes. So w- what this means is um, you can get stronger analogues than others mm. So of one drug. So for example, recently with the opioid crisis, what we heard about the new fentanyl analogues. So it's fentanyl is the main drug, but um, there appeared on the market a number of fentanyl analogues. And despite that, they are very, very strong drugs initially to start with, they actually vary the importance in terms of the uh, various uh, analogues.
0: Can you talk us through, again, some of the the main substances we're talking about here, but detail the effects they might have on somebody, perhaps in a worst case scenario, if I were to take, say, the the three most used uh, NPSs, what would happen to me potentially?
1: Okay. So, for example, if we talk about the opioids and the fentanyl analogues, these are the worst. Uh, why? Because you only need to take one powder particle to get respiratory depression. So some of these drugs, like carfentanil, is initially used to sedate elephants. So if you contaminate heroin with carfentanil and the user does not know that carfentanil is in there and takes a big dose, that, the dose that they usually take, maybe a gram, then that person will not have a chance to take a second dose because they will get respiratory depression and they will die. So, that is, that is very sad and very difficult to rescue. Of course, there is an antidote, uh, which is naloxone. But if the potency of the fentanyl analog is so high, one dose of naloxone may not work. So, you may need more and more and more until you revive that person, if successful. So, and if the, the antidote is present. Uh, at the scene. So that's for um, for the fentanyls. Um, if we uh, talk about the cathinones, for example, um, some of the very harmful side effects would be the hyperthermia, so increased temperature, like really, really high, and something called serotonergic syndrome, again, which can be fatal and very difficult to diagnose. So these are the things that usually these people are treated on ITU, so intensive care unit, and um, very difficult to, to save.
0: What else have we got in that list um, with its effects?
1: So, for example, with the cannabinoids, it is very difficult to understand how they work uh, initially. And um, they are very diverse. And to date, there are a few hundreds of them and um, uh, the, the, main, the main thing is when they are taken to hospital, um, symptom management is carried out and the person is discharge, discharged, if well. Um, however, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Um, again, if they are agitated, you try to um, uh, control agitation by certain drugs like benzodiazepines. Um, uh, so basically it is symptom management.
0: And obviously this is where you and your work come in. Mm-hmm. And are you trying to you know, mitigate some of these problems? Are you trying yeah. to sort of think about the supply? You know, what, what, what is your role in all of this?
1: So my role is basically to improve their detection because, or to improve their classification. So if I'm able to know which class this drug belongs to, then at least I will be able to inform decision-making regarding treatment and regarding saving that person or reducing harm. So and and recently we've done this through the first Home Office uh, approved UK um, uh, drug checking service.
0: Tell us more about that.
1: So um, in collaboration with Adduction, Adduction are su- a substance misuse service. Um, we have worked together to establish the first Home Office approved drug checking service in the UK that is pharmacist led, and that is so led by pharmacists and that. Um, basically adopt uh, a multidisciplinary approach. What do I mean by that? So we um, established this work in a substance misuse clinic and we invited people who are going to use drugs to come over so that we can test for the drugs. The main thing was not to condone drug use or to to say that drug use is safe at all. So the first thing was or the first aim was to say actually would you like to come in treatment by bringing that person into the clinic try to convince them to come into treatment and not to use the sample the drug sample at all however if they decide that they are going to use it anyway then we test it and we see what it contains then we um we develop a multidisciplinary approach to tackle this issue and to reduce harm with you know, from uh, taking the drug with that person. So um, based on the detection, we look holistically at the person, what other conditions or diseases that they have, what other drugs that they are on, how much they are taking, whether they used from that batch at all, whether they shared it from anyone, where they got it from. So try to build the information, try to understand the level of risk of harm, and then take it from there and develop uh, a clinical intervention and sometimes a more advanced intervention, uh, whether we advise them to be vaccinated, we give them naloxone just in case in case they overdose, um, refer them to a if we think they were intoxicated in the first place and so on.
0: Um, you said multidisciplinary. Yes. What other disciplines are involved here then?
1: So there were case workers, recovery workers, uh, doctors, um a pharmacist prescribers um so a number of and and the clinic manager as well, so we would discuss together the findings, but not only the findings in isolation, but considering the ethical, the professional, the clinical approach to the whole situation and then assess it and sometimes we had to refuse to to um to analyze samples because of ethical issues such as. Um, so, for example, if uh, it was a child, uh, if there was a child involved, for example, so we have undertaken a different approach outside of that drug testing service because the scope of it was for adults only. So um, if somebody brings something on behalf of a minor, then it is dealt with in a different way.
0: There must have been some quite difficult yes. stuff to deal with here. then. Yes. Yes. How did you find that?
1: It was very stressful because we are professionals at the end of the day and I'm a pharmacist and I have to deal with these situations in the most professional uh, way that uh, putting the patient uh, first, um, harm reduction, uh, making sure that that patient is going to be safe. That's the most important thing.
0: You said you didn't want to condone drug taking. Yeah. Uh, and this might be quite a political question, but yeah. I'll give it a go anyway. Yeah. Can you see the argument that says the big problem with these substances that you're dealing with is that they're unregulated and actually regulation of the drugs and then putting them out there on the market would mm. actually be a sensible way forward?
1: I think this argument is is debatable, but from my point of view, I think that the whole idea focus on uh, education and raising awareness, because there is um, there is evidence that if these drugs are used, for example, like cannabis and uh, the synthetic cannabinoids, if they were used in young brains, they may actually lead to the development of addictive behaviors. And basically, it can ruin that person's future. So I think if we have... Um, drug education and now in the UK we have started since last September uh, it became mandatory in high schools to to uh, deliver drug education to to students and the purpose of that is to empower them so even if they are in a situation where everybody is using drugs they will take the, an informed they will have an informed decision you know uh, to take um And I think that that is key. So, in our situation with the drug check in, we never said that the drug is safe to use, even if we didn't find anything in it, because it can simply be a false negative uh, result. And the other thing is, we did not return the sample back to the person as per UK legislation. So, that was very, very clear.
0: And I mean, sort of sticking with this theme to an extent, I suppose, should people be allowed to? make some of these judgments for themselves if they know there's a managed risk in taking a certain substance should they not be able to take it a little bit like they do with alcohol they know alcohol is bad for them but they still drink it
1: yes i think definitely people should make informed decisions and i know if they know more they will make better informed decisions but uh, on many occasions we find now especially with the internet people are self-medicating People go online and buy anything that they cannot get from a doctor. And that's totally wrong because this is where, if you're not sure, why don't you go and speak to your pharmacist? And your pharmacist is going to be in a better position to inform you. Sometimes, for example, back pain, a simple way of starting drug misuse, between quotation marks, <laughs> how, if if I have severe back pain and I go over the counter and I buy some, some codeine, for example, um, Codeine, it says, use for a maximum of three days. After that, it can cause addiction. If I took three days and it didn't relieve my pain, I, sh- I should see a doctor because maybe I need some physiotherapy. Maybe there are other ways of dealing with that. Otherwise, I go to my doctor and my doctor thinks like, okay, I've been on this for too long and that's not good for me. Then I will go online and buy it. And that's totally wrong.
0: And I guess the flip side of the questions I've just asked is that you have done all this research. You recognise these things are dangerous, even if they're regulated, they're dangerous. Yes. Um, Should the state then just then not, sorry, should the state not just take a much firmer role here and say, no, we should really put a lot of effort into just restricting this stuff for everybody?
1: No, I don't think this is going to work because people will, since the very old age, since the ancient Egyptians... People have always gone to the, you know, plants and herbal material to extract some substances that can be used recreationally, that will give them a high. And I think that has happened since the very old age. Uh, People have always sought this effect and liked it. Um, But, so I think restricting um, everything and putting everyone in prison is not the way forward.
0: They might incentivize people not to take them, though. If every, if you know, they know people who have done, who've had their liberties taken away.
1: Mm, no, I think the, the uh, uh, an answer to that is the high use of drugs in prisons.
0: Which we will come on to, I promise. Before we do, um, what do you think the future is for these NPSs?
1: What we are seeing now is the number of new drugs completely unseen before that are being reported to the European Monitoring Center on Drug and Drug Addiction uh, is reducing. So that number is reducing. But does it mean that the market has reached sit- saturation perhaps? Or uh, what does this mean? Um, has chemists run out of ideas of making new, new molecules? I'm not sure. But if you look on the studies that we have carried out uh, to surf the web and find out what, Substances and molecules are available online. Actually, they are in the thousands, not in the hundreds. So they are not actually—they are not stopping. They are not going anywhere. They are actually increasing and increasing and increasing. However, what we're seeing is also a number of molecules, whether they are controlled or not by law, they became established and very popular, and people are buying them regardless whether they are controlled or not. And a good example of that is Mephadron.
0: Why is that a particularly good example?
1: Because it was banned in April 2010, I think. And in June, a new analog came about, nafiron, And despite that Mephedrone was like the first to be, it was extremely popular, replacing ecstasy. But then until today, we are seeing Mephedrone. We are seeing cases of death and toxicity from Mephedrone. We are, it's just... It's it's established, it's popular, it's accessible, it's probably still cheap, but uh, it's illegal to possess, but people still get it.
0: Feel free to call me cheeky here, Uh but have you ever tried any of the substances that you research?
1: No, but I made them during my research.
0: (laughs) Tell us more about that.
1: I actually made (laughs) methadrone. Difficult? Easy? Um, I'm not an organic chemist. So, therefore, it was a little bit difficult for me, but it was part uh, of my PhD to just, um, first of all, to have a feel of how these drugs, uh, the synthesis of these uh, drugs work. Also, because to improve identification, you need a lot of the pure material, Mm. which is very expensive to buy. So, it was easier for me to make.
0: And... Was it? How? Yeah. How did you make it? Where did you make it? I assume just in, so in, the, in the lab. lab. Yes. In the lab, yes. Under strictly under, controlled. Of
1: course, under home yeah. office license, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, a, a very restricted way of making it. It's like a chemical reaction. Uh, it was slightly difficult, and therefore I had uh, a lot of help from my colleague Katie at the time, an organic chemist. Um, and usually, the the reaction would take us two days to to produce maybe a couple of grams. Um, yeah, it was good days. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and was it useful in the long run for all the work you'd done?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we still have some that my students now are using <laughs> in their tests. <laughs>
0: in, in the tests.
1: Oh, yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> in their experimental tests, yeah.
0: Um, I asked a question about you. Let's stick with you just for a moment. Um, what's your career, be, or how have you come here to Swansea? What has your career path been?
1: So um, I started as an accountant. Then I pursued a a career in pharmacy. Then I worked a little bit in in hospital. And uh, I think what started to intrigue me about these drugs is, as pharmacists, we call ourselves the drug experts. And um, one day I was taking a drug history on a patient from a patient on the ward, and I was asking just a casual question, so are you on any herbal medicines? And he said, yes. And I was like, what is it? And he said, marijuana. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> why is this? So I, at the time, I wasn't really familiar with marijuana, and I knew it may be a controlled substance. So as pharmacists, we, there are protocols that we need to follow. We have to take this, this substance, not keep it on... Uh, the, with the patient or in the patient uh, bedside unit. We have to take and put it in the control, dra- uh, control drug cabinet. Uh, we have to record it in the book, uh, um, in the control drug book, and so on. So it was kind of, for me, intriguing. And since then, I started to ask all patients like about their herbal medicines because they don't necessarily think any herbs are drugs. So, um, and then I started my PhD and I've done it at the University of Hertfordshire. And uh, since then, um, I became also an academic and but I, I worked a lot in research because I really admired um, working in research. And then I came to Swansea about six months ago <laughs> to be the M-Pharm Programme Director for our new pharmacy school.
0: And how have you found it since you've been here?
1: It's been fantastic. It's been amazing. Glad to hear it. Yeah.
0: Something you said there did just make me think of a point we were discussing a little bit earlier, which is that sometimes with for example marijuana or cannabis, mm. some people think that it's a very soft drug, but actually mm. you talked very uh, eloquently about how yeah. it gets into the, you know, the brain and particularly can impede the development of younger people's brains. Yes. do you think that we sometimes conflate or uh, confuse drugs that have direct effects on the brains versus mm-hmm. one that have ones that have direct effects on the body or the organs of the body? Should we be looking at them and separating them out a little bit more? No, we no? can't
1: because no. many of the drugs actually cross the blood-brain barrier. Sure. And, but if we are taking them in a certain way under their license, so if a drug is licensed, let's say, for a depression, and I take that certain dose that many times, so the right frequency, the right dose for the right indication, then that should be theoretically safe. Uh, despite that the drug may cross the blood-brain barrier. However, we have to be very uh, careful about studied studies, sorry, drugs that have a lot of evidence behind them. So a lot of clinical trial data that are backing them up in order to understand how to deal with harms and side effects and, and understand that and, and tell the patient, this drug may cause sleepiness, so don't drive or be careful if you are going to drive, things like that. But if we are talking now about medicinal cannabis, uh, NICE guidelines, they have gathered all the evidence from all the studies that have been carried out to say, okay, cannabis can be used for the treatment of pain or for the treatment of epilepsy or uh, nausea and vomiting, but the studies have proved to be very, very small studies on very small uh, cohorts, and therefore clinical Uh, confirmation that actually it works so the evidence the robustness of the evidence is not really uh, good and therefore NICE did not um, recommend medicinal cannabis yet except for the uh, already licensed products. In the UK we only have one uh, licensed product which is Sativex and that's used for multiple sclerosis.
0: You've done studies on the impact of cognitive enhancers Mm -hmm. what are they?
1: So this project actually looks at um, the use of cognitive enhancers by project students. Sorry, by university students.
0: Oh, so are these the things that people take to sort of get give them more brain power and keep them up at night so they can study more?
1: Yes. So they call them smart drugs yep. or study drugs. And um, there are studies already in place uh, that are published that show that um students maybe around exam times, you know, they go online and they buy these drugs that will boost uh, their alertness and uh, help them study for longer and not sleep at all. And um, uh, what I can say on that is there are no uh, studies to date um, to prove for sure the effect of these drugs in healthy individuals, because some of these drugs are actually used for um, Uh, ADHD or dementia or you know so if you use them in a healthy individual what would be the impact so there are limited studies that have been published uh, to talk about the possible harms uh, for using them in uh, healthy individuals but I believe that more research needs to be done
0: what might they do for people with ADHD or dementia
1: so basically it will improve the memory okay uh, for example, so in the case of dementia, so it will improve the memory. So f- for students, they would think uh, that this is a good way of, you know, when they study things, they will retain the information. But coming back to that, is that ethical? Can you actually do that?
0: Yeah. Did you collaborate with other institutions on this particular project? I think I read um, UAE.
1: Yes, at the moment. So this is a, a fairly new project, and we are uh, collaborating with Iraq University in UAE.
0: And what does that collaboration involve? How big are the teams?
1: Um, I think this collaboration involves collecting data from both uh, universities uh, present in uh, UAE and in the UK. Um, I think it is going to be very, very interesting for us to see because in UAE, perhaps there is a different system. Maybe um, you don't need a prescription for all drugs, like in the UK, where in the UK you can only access and get hold of these drugs only via prescription or you can buy them online, which does not guarantee whether the drug is a counterfeit or uh, contaminated or actually contains the active ingredient that you think it is. In in UAE and in the Middle East um, in general or in this part of, of the world, maybe they have different uh, legislation uh, controlling the supply of of medicines. And I think that for us will be a very good uh, idea to see um, whether access has an impact.
0: So it's useful to do those comparisons of across course. across borders. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And has your work taken you to lots of other countries and other places, you know, in the spirit of comparing different systems?
1: So the area of drug checking in particular has drawn a lot of attention because it has not been... Um, uh, I don't want to say approved, but maybe not supported by a number of governments, particularly in, in Australia. And I think that's because um, drug checking was taking place, for example, at music festivals uh, where people still died. Mm. So people have uh, and uh people from the parliament, they have challenged drug checking and they said it's a waste of money. Because people are still dying, so you are still checking the you know the drugs but people are dying, so what you're doing it doesn't mean anything it's just increasing drug use and encouraging it so i um so I've given my my um ad- advice on on this uh basically recently in Australia
0: and what was your advice
1: so my advice was first of all, I think from the pilot we ran here in the u k which was used as a model um it shows that if you, you run this type of um, uh, drug checking services or, uh, or interventions um, in a controlled environment uh, run by clinicians who may also be analysts, like in the case of with, with myself, uh, it becomes very important to, to see how dr- the interpretation of the results and how this link to the clinical decision is so important. So linking these two together is so important because if you have, if you misinterpret the results or if you, let's say you you don't have such an experience and you're just taking it, because many of these um, technologies, they are made for non-experts. So they give you like pass or fail. So sometimes it can be hit and miss. So if you don't really have the understanding and the experience to interpret the results, you may misinform the clinical decision, and that can be very harmful. That's number one. Number two, um, it's the controlled environment where you have access to all sources of help and support. So if you are within a substance misuse service, you have the um, suicide mitigation team ready, the a is a referral pathway to them, uh, the antidotes to supply. So you have the the risk mitigation in place. So that's another thing. And the technology itself that you use. There are so many technologies in place for drug detection, but do they actually work and deliver what they need to do? And I think that was discussed as well.
0: I have a funny feeling we're going to start talking about this now when I mention prisons, with all okay. the things like detection, but also smuggling of drugs in, like you just mentioned. So, yeah, do you want to tell us about your your work with prisons and with these substances being smuggled into prisons?
1: Yeah, so we, we have been working on developing methods to um, enhance the detection of drugs in, in prisons and looking at the different forms they can be smuggled into. And I will not be able to uh, disclose that information, but we, will, uh, we are looking into how we can identify the drugs, even if they are concealed in very complex material.
0: And when you talk about being concealed, this is yeah. often in a quite personal way, I presume.
1: Um, most of the time, but not necessarily. Things being flown into prisons—do you even hear about that? Yes, yes, yes. So the use of drones mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and just throwing it uh, through um, uh, on top of the fences. So mm. yeah, this is these are old known techniques, but now of course we have the systems in place to prevent these from happening.
0: I read about NMR. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us what that is first and foremost and how that sort of contributes to all of this?
1: So NMR is nuclear magnetic resonance uh, spectroscopy.
0: And how do you use that in this context?
1: So this is um, a big instrument Mm -hmm. in our lab at uh, at the university. It fills a whole room. And it's so expensive. However, (laughs) it helps elucidating the chemical structure of completely unknown molecules. So many of the techniques, especially the ones that you use in the field, may identify part of the molecule, but may not necessarily identify the entire molecule. So NMR in particular is very good in this way. So it will tell you where each group fits so that you can actually solve the puzzle and actually put the molecule together (laughs) and identify it.
0: Okay. You've done work on cigarettes and e-cigarettes and vaping, haven't you? Yes. So can you tell us a bit about that as well?
1: So in this work, we have surfed the social media platforms particularly Twitter, to see what people are saying. It is a very important uh, platform because it's anonymous. We are not invading, you know, people, private information, but it is widely available, publicly available information. And what was really interesting in this work is we um, identified uh, preferred um, recreational synthetic psychoactives uh, that are actually vaped. What was really surprising is recently we started to hear about the death from e-vaping in the U.S. in particular. And to my knowledge, up to last week, there were 26 deaths. So from what was publicly available, it was mentioned that uh, in the death cases, many of them had nicotine and had THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinol, which is a very main active ingredient in cannabis. uh, sometimes like very similar analog to, synth- to some of the synthetic cannabinoids. So it's still not known why or how these two together contributed to the death of people. But actually that confirmed our findings from the information we gathered on uh, from Twitter and that data is not published yet, but it's going to be published soon.
0: Sounds quite concerning.
1: It is. It is. Because whether it is claimed or not, because some information is, say, is showing that some e-liquids have been sold contaminated. So if they are contaminated with, so there is evidence that they were sold contaminated with novel psychoactive substances or contaminated with microbes. So we've seen these two cases.
0: Just a quick one on this use of Twitter then as a research tool. Yeah. Uh, I can see why you've done it. It's yeah. obviously, like you say, it's a public platform. Yeah. There must be problems with using it as a resource.
1: Of course, because um, first of all, if you see a tweet and 100 people retweet it, that doesn't mean they endorse it and that doesn't mean it's correct. So you you have to go back to the original tweet and um, also the way to analyze it, you look subjectively at the words uh, in isolation of the entire context. So it is limited in that way. So you try to use some words because use softwares to, to make the analysis for you. So you choose some words to identify whether people are in favour or against. So um, it can be limited in that sense.
0: So in this particular example of yours, mm. how were you using Twitter? You were going to these tweets. And what were people saying and how were you then extrapolating information from so that? So we
1: were using particular keywords on, on the drugs of concern. Like what? So like synthetic cannabinoids, for example.
0: So someone would be tweeting and saying, I have just used... This, an, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then based on what likes and retweets and things like that, what could you, what could you glean? No,
1: we didn't use the likes or retweets no. okay. because uh, all the purpose was to identify what drugs. I see. Yeah, because that for me is more of a public health issue, and I'm I'm not focused on um, at this point. I'm focused more on the healthcare part of it as a, as a pharmacist and I'm focused, focused more on the public health uh, issue that is actually resulting out of the, of the use of these drugs.
0: And where do you hope this will all lead?
1: Hopefully we, this will lead to us understanding more the recent trends and try to tackle it from there. Also this will help us to uh, tailor our uh, harm reduction and education on these drugs.
0: Can we talk about um, gabapentinoids? Because yes. Because I know you've done work on this. Yeah. Uh, firstly, explain what all of this is mm. and what you do.
1: So for the gabapentinoids, um, these are um, a class of drugs which are um, indicated for a number of conditions like epilepsy and like neuropathic pain. And at some point when the opioids were causing a lot of issues with addiction and dependence and withdrawal symptoms, uh, maybe some clinicians were directing their patients into stopping the opioids and starting the gabapentinoids, which are have seemed to be um, very safe drugs and very we have a very high number of um, prescriptions for them uh, they are still good drugs there is nothing wrong with them but what we what was found recently uh, was uh, that they may be causing dependence and withdrawal symptoms themselves. Not only the gabapentinoids, but um, in a a review uh, published by Public Health England, um, Public Health England asked to review the prescribing of all drugs that can cause dependence and withdrawal symptoms. And these include the opioids, the benzodiazepines, the Z drugs, the antipsychotics, antidepressants, and GABAergic drugs, and also the GABA pentinoids, because of this reason. Uh, dependence and withdrawal symptoms may not happen in all patients, and may not happen at all doses. So I cannot generalize, so to be very clear. But this particular research was mostly to find out whether there are other adverse drug reactions to GABAPentinoids that we never heard of before. because. We didn't really see in the manufacturer summary of product characteristic, any information on um, some of, you know, for example, on uh, possible dependence or withdrawal symptoms. So that prompted us to think, are there other adverse drug reactions that are happening and we don't know about? So we started to collect what people are saying about this.
0: And what were they saying?
1: Actually, this is part of a publication that needs to be fine. published. So,
0: so we will keep hush for now. People yes. can look out for your publications. Yes. No, that's fine. That's fine. Only for now. I see with something like um, the gabapentinoids. Yes, uh, that people having withdrawal symptoms from them is bad in itself. But why would you want people to come off them anyway? What other side effects might they have that that you know are, are undesirable?
1: I mean, they they are very well tolerated drugs, and that's why we had a lot of. Uh, prescriptions for them but we like um, now there are actions being taken that's why I cannot really comment on this but there are new guidelines about if you see a patient for example with withdrawal symptoms from gabapentinoids what do you do and there are um, new guidelines um, set by NICE um, to advise prescribers on this um, whether to put patients on other drugs. Um, and manage the pain in a different way. So, to manage pain, there are now teams that are who are working on this to see first, first line non-drug ways of doing this. Then, uh, also behavioral science. So, the use of behavioral science to um, to make people understand uh, that if we have chronic pain uh, conditions, um, we still have some sort of threshold that we will have to tolerate and we can work on in, on that threshold. Um, the point is we need people to understand that the answer is not in a drug. Sometimes the answer is to do more exercise and then the back pain is going to disappear. So I think it's more working on the behavior and uh, patient expectations because there are no wonder drugs. All drugs, they have side effects and they have good effects, but we have to manage that sensibly.
0: A a holistic approach to things. Yes, Yes. correct. Yeah. So, would you say that on the whole, when it comes to prescription medical drugs, that Mm. you're pro medication or pro drugs or not?
1: Uh, (laughs) As a pharmacist, I hardly take any medication. (laughs) Mm. Um, I try to see what is the root cause of the problem and try to deal with it. Uh, But sometimes you cannot do that, of course, especially with chronic conditions. Um, And it is very important that. for patients to be um, compliant and and adherent to prescribed medications and not to try to self-medicate from over-the-counter or from the internet. And if they are in doubt that they don't want to take a certain medication because it's got a lot of side effects, it's advised to speak to the pharmacist who can always say what would be an alternative route or uh, clarify whether there is a myth that this drug causes side effects.
0: There might be people listening to you, um, perhaps young people mm. who are thinking not only is this all fascinating, but actually you're doing a lot of good or you're trying to do a lot of good. And they might think, I'd like to get into your line of work. How could they get into your line of work?
1: So the best way is to apply to our new pharmacy course, which is um, an innovative uh, M-Pharm degree, which we are now designing um, to meet the global uh, health needs. So basically, we are looking forward to uh, produce graduates who are ready to face the challenges of the profession.
0: Amira, thank you so much for all of that. If you want to find out more about Dr. Gurgis' research, you can visit her staff profile at Swansea University's medical school webpage. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening and thank you again to our guest, Dr. Amir Gurgis. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. I'm Sam Blaxland and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.